Welcome to West Virginia University's Women in Science and Medicine podcast, brought to you by the Health Sciences Center's Office of Research and Graduate Education. We will be talking to women with careers in these fields, gaining their insight into what it's like operating in roles that are still mostly dominated by men. I'm your host, Mallory Weaver, and today my guest is Dr. Shelley Wong. Dr. Hong comes to us from Duke University and is their Mary and Daryl Hart Professor of Surgery, Vice Chair of Research in the Department of Surgery, Professor in the Department of Radiology, and co-leader of their Women's Cancer Program in the Duke Cancer Institute. Welcome, Dr. Huang, and thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here, Mallory. Thanks for inviting me. Sure. So for those unfamiliar with your work and career, can you just briefly describe for us your roles at Duke and what led you there? Yes, I think like many women and also men in academics, I wear multiple hats. I think the most important hat that I wear is a big one, and that is taking care of patients with breast cancer. So first and foremost, I'm a surgical oncologist, which means that I operate on patients who have cancer. And certainly for the last 10 years, I've really focused my career on taking care of patients with breast cancer at all stages, at all levels of risk. Um, And that's really where I derive, I think, my highest satisfaction. I also have a lot of administrative hats too. Um, One of the things I really enjoy is I'm vice chair of research in the Department of Surgery. And that involves a lot of different things, but a really big part of that is mentoring junior faculty and residents and also some medical students all of whom are trying to uh, think about the role of surgery and research in their career development and in their lives. I also lead the breast oncology program at Duke, which means that I uh, oversee the clinic and where we see patients um, and just manage the ins and outs of taking care of patients with breast cancer. And then finally, uh, another aspect of my work that I think is just so um, enriching for me is that I have my own lab. Uh, We have uh, primarily a a genomics lab, which looks at predictors of um, invasive progression uh, in pre-invasive cancer. And what that means is we're just trying to understand some biological aspects of what causes cancer and specifically breast cancer. Um, So just from that description of how I spend my time, um, I think you can get an understanding of um, a kind of holistically um, thinking of of my work um, and trying to take a lot of the insights that I have from um, just helping patients every day, trying to understand the questions that are really most important to them and that we should be worried about as well, um, and trying to do work in the lab and in clinical trials that help to answer the questions that are most important to patients. Sure. And I plan to ask this of all of our female guests, but When and why do you think were you inspired as a girl or a young woman to pursue a career in science or medicine? I think that's a very interesting question for me in particular, because I never was interested in a career in science or medicine, which you would not have been able to guess based on where I am right now. Sure. But when I was growing up, I had uh, very much an immigrant experience. And uh, even though you might think that my parents would have pushed me into doing science or medicine, they really just wanted me to learn how to speak English <laughs> and to be able to understand what was going on at school. So I think our goals as a family and, and even for me were pretty modest. And I, uh, there, at a very early age, I, I got very interested in just reading, read voraciously. Um, and it's kind of interesting because my kids are the same way too. And I just decided that I love books. I love reading. I love the written word. And so I majored in comparative literature in college. 
um, had always planned to be a linguist or, or an interpreter of sorts. And, um, and that really was uh, what I was most interested in. I really didn't have any aspirations to go into medicine or science because I think I just wasn't exposed to it. I didn't right. know what it was about. Um, I knew the classes were hard, so they weren't particularly attractive to me. I didn't really understand what scientists and engineers did. And I think that's actually a really a great nugget for people is just um, the things that you're exposed to early in life really help to determine the trajectory you're uh, your career takes, but not necessarily. So um, I, I think one thing that we as women in particular, because a lot of times we don't get introduced to science or medicine um, in the way that maybe boys might be, um, right. is to just keep an open mind. I mean, you never know where you're going to find your next inspiration or your next exciting thing that you're curious about. Um, I wouldn't rule out anything. And I think that's one aspect of my career that has allowed me to um, kind of grow different aspects or um, pick up tools that I think helped me to see the big pattern of my career uh, to try to fit in the clinical work, uh, the basic science. And what I didn't mention in the beginning, because it's not an actual hat that I wear is, you know, my career uh, has come full circle in a way because the humanities are really what drew me into medicine. Mm. And really at the end of the day, even though during the early and middle part of your career, you spend a lot of time just understanding the tools that you need to do all the things that you want to do. Um, I think, you know, once you get to a certain place, and I'm a full professor now, um, you have the freedom to try to understand uh, how it fits into the larger path of human aspirations and endeavors. Um, I I mean, and I I have, my work is just a very small part of that, but I think to try to fit that into how your work contributes to the greater whole is uh, something that I found really exciting, especially in the last few years. Sure. That ties in nicely with the one thing that I wanted to ask you. I saw an interview in which you've said that being a wife and mother helps you connect with patients and understand that you're treating the entire family and not just the patient. Do you think that level of empathy has progressed your career and not just not just your understanding of patients, but has, like you said, has helped you understand the bigger picture and has helped progress your career? I don't know if it's helped me progress my career uh, so much as helping me to develop my own style of interacting with patients right. and um, understanding the disease. I think we all bring different strengths and gifts to the table. And I think one of the the things that I really enjoy about my interactions with patients is really getting to know who they are, because increasingly the kinds of treatments that we give to patients are not immediately life-saving, but they're all about reducing risks of either cancer or other medical problems uh, in the future and helping patients to balance that trade-off of more aggressive treatment versus potentially um, longer cancer-free survival. So um, I think understanding how to involve the patient and the family in that conversation um, is not just transactional. I mean, it really has to be uh, a lot more about understanding what the patients and the family's values are, where that woman is in her life. You know, is she just trying to start a new family, um, just having, you know, started a new career and is very early on in in all of that? 
uh, or is she sort of um, mid-career where she has uh, where she's trying to raise her children and um, or is she more at the later aspect of her life where she's uh, really trying to improve the quality of her life and um, where we need to consider other comorbidities and other you know personal commitments that that uh, individual has. So I think it's not just about the treatment. It's not about the surgery and the potential complications and how you do the case. I mean, all those things are very important, but those things are kind of uh, details in the foundation that you have to set with the patient, which is to understand them and what what is really important to them in their care. Sure. Back in 2016, you were named as one of Time's most influential Americans. And I found an interview that you had done where you're quoted. And I found this funny quote, mentors who were women were like zebras. It was really uncommon to have a female surgeon who could be a mentor or a role model. In the absence of representative mentorship, how did, what tools did you use to advance your career? Well, I want to say that uh, representative mentorship can take on many forms. Mm -hmm. And I think we limit our access to good advice by just trying to call advice from people who look kind of like us. Sure. Yeah. And in the absence of having mentors who looked more like me, I think I just uh, had to make connections with people who didn't look like me. But what people look like externally don't necessarily indicate whether they'll be good mentors or not. So I think trying to find mentors who um, really share your same, a similar life view or uh, model certain aspects of their career and their personal characteristics that you want to model in your own career. I think those are things that you should look for as well. Now, a lot of times people who look like you have had to overcome some of the same sorts of challenges that you as an individual might be facing. And I think in terms of that, external appearance might be one criterion that you use in terms of searching for a mentor, but don't limit yourself. There are so many great mentors out there who've had different life experiences maybe, uh, but come from the same place of how they view the human condition, how they view science and medicine, and provide um, some really interesting and and possibly new ways of living and thinking that are also really important sources of inspiration. I love that. We talk a lot about diversity in our office, and that that is one of the ideas that we really embrace, that you know, diversity is kind of like the tide that rises all boats, you know, the, the more different faces in the room, the more different perspectives you have, and you can more creatively solve pretty much any problem because you do have that diverse array of perspectives. So I love that. Do you yourself enjoy mentoring others or more specifically other women? Well, definitely the answer is yes, but I think that's a very, it can be relationships are uh, as variable as sure. um, as the individuals. So I think my mentoring takes on different forms depending on what um, our relationship is and what I think the mentee is um, reaching out to me for. So I'll have a very different kind of interaction with, say, um, a medical student who's just starting to think about a career in medicine um, or uh, when I'm talking to a collaborator where we're uh, working on a research project together. Um, and I will say I'm mentored by a variety of different types mm-hmm. of people as well. So um, I have scientific mentors. I have personal mentors. I've worked with a fabulous coach that I have. 
Um, but mentoring can come in all shapes and sizes. And also you can get uh, great mentorship from your, uh, your peers as well. So I would say mentoring is, is one of the gifts that you can give back. But just as your choice of a mentor, your choice of a mentee actually should not be limited by what they look like and, and what their needs are, um, I think you can contribute in many ways to many people's careers, whether it's a formal relationship I think women who have gotten to a place where they have some wisdom that they can impart to other people need to start doing a much better job of mentoring other women. Yeah. Um, I think from what I see on social media, I just don't think women are giving each other enough grace. That seems to happen in uh, a little bit more with men where they sort of give each other the benefit of the doubt and support each other. Um, almost without knowing much about the other person. They'll just give each other the benefit of the doubt. I think women don't give each other the same kind of grace, generally speaking. Um, I agree with you. (laughs) Many, many, many uh, tremendous exceptions to that. Right. I think we just need to focus on, you know, mentoring is not a judgmental activity. It's also not self-serving. It's very focused on what you're providing to the mentee. And I think, Again, we as women, if we're fortunate enough to find ourselves in a position where people are looking to us for advice, um, we need to give other women more grace. Absolutely. If representative mentorship may be one limiting factor for women in their careers, what do you think are other major obstacles for women pursuing science and medicine? Traditionally, I think one really big obstacle is that women have been a little bit more reticent to ask for advice. Um, I'm not trying to stereotype here, but I think because when I was starting out in surgery, for instance, there were so few women in surgery. We it was hard for us to know whether we should just behave like men and be treated like men. Um, and then kind of giving up that whole part of our personality, or whether we really should embrace being women and really valuing what a female perspective could bring to the practice of medicine and surgery. Um, And I don't think it's an either or. I think a lot of us in the early days, at least when there wasn't a lot of representative mentorship, fell back on trying to act like everybody else who was already in the field. And you know, that was, that's never going to succeed because you can't deny a part of you. That's just an intrinsic part of who you are and, and represents the best value that you can bring to the endeavor. So I think all of those aspects are really important. And I guess what I would say is that women uniquely bring, you know, their own perspective, but I think individuals bring their own perspective. So I think I see a common theme in this conversation here, which is, you know, don't limit yourself. Right. You're not, you know, even taking into account all the issues around intersectionality, uh, you're not defined by what you are, but who you are. And that's what you need to bring with you every day. And that's the, uh, you know, it's a life quest to find that authentic core of yourself, which is unique. And if you um, can tap into that, that's what's going to be your most powerful source of, of what you bring to the table. You need to find that core that defines who you are and it's not what you are. Yeah. I, I often kind of call that step into your light, you know, your, your unique light. Yeah. COVID we know has affected everyone tremendously, of course, but it's having a unique 
negative impact on women's careers. Have you seen that at all amongst women colleagues? I've really been troubled by it, and I'm not really certain that I understand what's causing this issue. But I've had conversations with other researchers primarily, uh, not so much clinicians, but researchers who are doing basic science work. And there are many of us who have experienced a lot of uh, female graduate students and postdocs who have been um, really feeling um, disenfranchised by the impact of COVID and are making decisions not to not pursue academics. So there's been a much higher attrition rate among women graduate students and postdocs that I'm aware of. Um, and I think it is a, an issue that's been raising concern at the highest levels, including at the NIH. Um, journals, very high impact journals have really written about this. And so it's definitely data. There are definitely data out there that support that the pandemic has disproportionately affected trainees who are women. I don't have a good explanation for it. I think it's a problem and a serious one. Um, my hope is that this is uh, transient. And then when we get back to a new normal, although I feel like maybe we'll never get back to a new normal, <laughs> yeah. um, that we need to better support uh, retention of women in the fields of science and medicine. Sure. One of the things we've heard a lot is the presence of microaggressions in the lab and everywhere and how offhanded and sometimes just totally, I mean, people impose them on others and they don't even, they're not trying to attempting to be negative or it's just so offhanded, but it's so common. Have you in your career experienced microaggressions or even now? And how did you handle them? I'm sure I have experienced microaggressions over the years, whether overt um, or, or not, but we didn't really have a label to define what they were. So, you know, this is a new word. And, and when you introduce kind of a new word or a concept into the lexicon, you just start talking about it more and noticing it more, I guess. So in terms of increased awareness, I think that's a very important thing. But I don't think it's a new thing. I mean, we've no. all been experiencing microaggressions in various forms, whether we had a word to describe what they were or not. I will tell you in surgery, we've recognized that the relationship between a female surgeon to her patients and other faculty and staff um, is very different than the relationship of a male surgeon to faculty and staff and their patients. And specifically, you know, maybe relationships between surgeons and nurses, for instance. That's a very fraught topic. And I, I don't think we really have time to get into that sure. now, but I think the first step is just being aware that there is this issue and then working towards making for a much more equitable playing field so that everyone is valued and respected on the basis of who they are uh, rather than whether they're men or women in that position. Sure. There are emerging data, again, just because we can measure it now because we're labeling it and becoming more aware of it. I don't think that we can say much about whether there's more or less microaggression than there used to be. Uh, but I think the forms that microaggression takes, at least currently in the way that we can measure it, is uh, a really important step in the right direction. Um, and I think just kind of traditionally in these fields that have been, been male-dominated, uh, women need to reclaim their place. Um, or, or I'm sorry, claim their place. Um, the different perspectives that we can bring to the table from our different life experiences are incredibly valuable and will only enrich 
the kind of science that we can do. We can bring topics that are very relevant to uh, women, but also incredibly scientifically fundamental and important. And just an example of the kinds of egregious oversights that have been taking place. Um, I was talking to one of my friends the other day, and uh, she was mentioning that in her lab, almost all the immunology experiments have been done on male rats um, for the last 10 years. So, you know, I think the assumption is just made that when you do animal experiments on males, the same findings will translate to females. But that those experiments are never done. So that's a whole half of, of the population that whose direct relevance to you know animal-based experiments it has not been confirmed. I mean, another population I think is as poorly studied is the pediatric population with the mm-hmm. same sorts of issues. But but really, I mean, when you think about how little how little work has been done on basic science that involve both male and female experiments, except for the cancers that affect only women, such as ovarian and and breast cancer. I mean, that is the unique exception to the rule, but that's because you can't study ovarian cancer in male rats, right? Right. (laughs) Um, But other than that, you know, it is kind of stunning how- That's fascinating. um, Very few experiments are consistently done using both male and female populations. So uh, we need to lean in on that. And I think that will only improve healthcare for men and women if we understand the similarities as well as differences. It's a huge opportunity that we're just not capitalizing on and we, we have to. Absolutely. Absolutely. What do you think is the single most thing that you would want to tell young girls and women about pursuing a career in science and medicine? I think for women who are pursuing potential careers in science and medicine, there's a big din out there with social media, and it's Mm. really hard to lose focus. There's just so much out there, and and it's just hard to um, avoid getting sidetracked by issues that are loud, but maybe not very important at the end of the day. So I would encourage everyone to really try to spend meaningful time in trying to better understand what your values are and what your your own personal interests are and to try not to be swayed by everything you're hearing when you get on social media and talk to your friends. I think we share a common humanity, but I think what makes the human race so just amazing is that we all come with our own very unique perspectives. So don't try to shoehorn your interests into what you think you should be interested in. You need to find what's exciting to you and the questions that you like thinking about. And that's what's going to be sustainable throughout your career. So find that inner voice. Be limitless. (laughs) Well, that is all I have for you, Dr. Huang. I want to thank you so much for joining me on the Women in Science and Medicine podcast this morning. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Mallory. I really enjoyed it.